0: It's our prayer that this message from God's Word will deeply impact your life. Good morning, Portico. Great to have you with us. Love seeing you in the room. I love to hear the buzz that's in the room when you're greeting each other. And those of you online, we welcome you to Portico today. So good to be connected together. Listen, that video you just watched, that's the beginning of an incredible adventure. For people that are discovering, asking questions about faith, about Jesus, we encourage you, if you've never been a part of Alpha, sign up and go. You will love it. And that's your adventure. Now, for the rest of us, you had a good week so far? Yeah. Excellent. Get your apps out, get your notes out, get your Bibles out. We have uh, bulletin notes for you, you can follow along. We're in week number two of our series, it's called The Great Adventure. Last Sunday was phenomenal, what a great Great day at the church, and uh, we are so glad so many of you are able to be with us and enjoy the water baptism, the testimony, and just all the change and transformation that we were talking about. And today, as you can tell right at the front of the room, that we are going to share in communion together. Now, right at the beginning, I want you to realize that when you see these elements in the room, and many of you will be familiar if you've attended church for a little while, and if you're new to the church, we're so glad you're here, and you'll get to understand a little bit of why we do what we do. But the communion elements, the cup of juice and the piece of bread, they are pivotal to our expression of faith as followers of Jesus Christ. And so when we do this, they're symbolic reminders of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ, but not merely a historical event that took place, but the transformative work of Christ that made us new people. Brand new creations. And so when we take communion, we always, whenever we do this, we invite people to come in and just to reflect and be prepared for that. But it fit in very, very well today that we would do this as a part of our worship expression at the end of the service. So we're going to do that, and our hearts will be ready to honor Christ for all that He has done. Now, listen, when we talk about great adventure... As we jump into ours, here's what I want you to think about. We're reflecting back on the life of Jesus some 2,000 years. But imagine what it must have been like for his followers from day one. So the 12 that he selected, the 70 that followed him, the people that got sent out, and the masses of people that were following Jesus. So Jesus would try to explain who he was. And we're going to look at a very fundamental question in today's focus. And it's going to be, why Jesus? But really, underneath it, I'm going to talk about why did Jesus have to die? Now, if you're a follower of Christ, listen carefully. You've probably never considered what I'm about to tell you today. Either you've made a decision and you're following Christ and the assumptions have been adopted, or you've never wrestled down what I'm going to share with you. And I want you to hear this. And if you're investigating faith today, I just might happen to touch on some of the points of resistance that maybe are your point of resistance for not embracing who Christ is. And together... We're gonna go on a great adventure. You ready to go? Yes. All right. So Jesus, about two thousand years ago, he gets a group of followers together, and one day he takes them up into the north of Galilee to this place called Caesarea Philippi, physical location, and he takes them to the epicenter of their spiritual life. So this is Roman culture. So Jesus, there's this clash between Hebraic culture and Roman culture. Jesus was born a Jew, raised a Jew, living in the land of Israel, but the Romans were occupying and ruling. So he takes his followers up, and he's talking about this kingdom that's coming and God's kingdom. They get up to this epicenter of religion where there are temples of worship and their idolatry is there, and it's where the culture would amass together. And this is where their very civil life was focused when it came to their core beliefs and understanding. So he gets his followers up there, and he says to the twelve. He goes, who do people say that I am? So they just finished this road trip, they get all up there, and immediately he asks them, so who do people say that I am? Now there's kind of an imposing question because, you know, they don't want to offend Jesus, but they want to make sure they answered the question correctly. Now think about it. If somebody asked you, you know, who do you say that I am? How would you answer that? So go back to the disciples. Jesus says, who are people saying that I am? And they give a quick response. They say, well, uh we know you're not, but some are saying you're John the Baptist, and some are saying maybe you're Elijah, and there are a few that think maybe Jeremiah, but Jesus, you know, like hands down, um, for sure you're a prophet. So they're building up and giving him the best answer, at least from what they could hear from popular opinion, and then Jesus does something. He just like turns it like that, and he goes, who do you say I am? Ooh, how would you answer that? That can get just a little interesting, isn't it? See, we don't really think about that, but, but if somebody asks you right now, and you turn to somebody and say, who do you say that I am, how would you answer that question? Well, this could be fun. You guys up for this? All right, here we go. Turn to the person next to you and say, who do you say that I am? Now, okay, don't just ask the question. Get an answer. Find out. Now, if you're married and you were on the way to church today and you had a fight, you might get the answer, but it may not be the answer you really wanted. And look, man, I just gave you, a, I gave you a bonus right there. I don't care if you're dating, you're engaged, you're married. As soon as that woman looked you in the eye and said, who do you say that? Oh, you're the most beautiful, sweet, loving. That was a bonus takeaway. Jesus looks at his disciples and he goes, who do you say I am? Not popular culture, not what's out in social media, not what's out in the tabloids. I want to know who you really think I am. And Peter blurts out, and he goes, You are the Christ, or the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, Jesus said, Peter, you didn't get that through popular opinion. You didn't get that off the social media websites. You didn't get that through radio broadcast and talk shows. That was a direct download from my Father in heaven. You would not know who I am unless my father revealed it to you. And he goes, and on this rock, I'm going to build my church. Peter had no idea what he had just blurted out. Have you ever said anything so profound you actually surprised yourself? Everybody's like, "Uh, where are you going to go with this one? Yeah, there's moments I'll say something. They go, wow, Doug, that was really profound. I go, what did I just say? We should write it down because I don't even remember what I just said in the moment. Like we have these moments of like glaring insight that come from somewhere, and Peter probably was just like that in that moment. He goes, what did I just say, Jesus? Tell me what it was. What was so profound? And he goes, no, my Father revealed that to you, that I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. And Peter would pick that up, and through his journey with Jesus, he would go through his highs, he'd go through his lows, and he would eventually get into this restored relationship with Christ to become on his adventure where he would write the words that Jesus Christ would be the most central part to his life. And this is what he would say. It's our key text, 1 Peter 2.24. Peter would write about Jesus, that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. We go, well, we get that so that we might die to sins and we might live for righteousness. Those words rocked Peter's life. When he understood that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the Christ, he was the Son of the living God, it all came together for Peter and his entire life change where he goes, I get it now. I understand who you are. You paid the price for our sins. Sin has been covered by Jesus. Now I get to live for righteousness because of what you've done. And you're, well, you know, Doug, I think we understand that. But here's what I want to pose to you. When you say, why Jesus? And why, Jesus, why did Jesus have to die some 2,000 years now after the fact? I would suggest that most of your friends, maybe your family, your coworkers, peers, colleagues, that if you pose that question, why Jesus? Why did he have to die? That they would struggle to give you an answer that would speak to the solution Peter gave. In fact, many of them are still asking the question why Jesus? Watch the screens. Uh, um, I have no idea. Why did Jesus die? Jesus, did Jesus? I should really know this big question for early in the morning, isn't it? Jesus died for people, other people. He was saving us. Or was it Pontius Pilate probably got a bit jealous of Jesus getting all the birds? so... We all die. People die for different reasons. Uh, to, well, it, I think it was supposed to be like for our sins, wasn't it? Jesus died because people didn't agree with him. Well, probably fear is why he died or anything else. Didn't he, like, sacrifice himself on the cross, so it's his choice. Jesus died because of people's beliefs. That's up for oh. discussion. <laughs> Everybody dies, no one lives forever. I love the variety of answers that come in here. Were you listening closely? I like the one guy he says, I think it's because Pontius Pilate was jealous. Jesus was getting all the birds. Okay, you know, and it's humorous when we watch it, but that's where people are at. In fact, I think some of us in the room, if we really were honest with ourselves and we had to answer the question, why did Jesus have to die, we'd go, I'm not sure I could line up with everything about the cross and sin and salvation yet. So why Jesus and why is Jesus important to our life? So some 2,000 years after he lived and now we know he's resurrected and he still is alive we still as a society struggle to answer the question appropriately. So our great adventure today, here's what I want to do with the few minutes that we have together. I want to look at three points of resistance that people have when it comes to understanding who Jesus is and why he had to die. And then I want you to compare into your life. No matter where you fall on the equilibrium, whether you're beginning the journey or you're deep into your journey with Jesus, I want you to look at your answers comparatively to the points of resistance and let's find out where are we tracking today. Uh, You ready to go? Here's the first one I want you to write in your notes because this is important. It's where people are living. A point of resistance that people have when it comes to Jesus, they say, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. Look at my life. Look at my conduct. Look at the way I behave. Look at everything about me. You you see me day in and day out, and you understand me. And so most people would go, for the most part, I'm a good person. How many of you would agree with me that human beings are, for the most part, capable of really great things? Three of us, wow. It's okay, not a trick question. I think fundamentally we all, we all agree, we believe that human beings, when they give their best, are capable of significant, incredible work. Think about arts and science and medicine and health, technology. Think about compassion. In the wake of the hurricanes and all that's just taken place, what do we do? We rally together to make a difference for people. Because I think deep, deep down... People are good, so we respond accordingly. So we tend to believe, I think, that people are, for the most part, good, or at least they conduct themselves as good people. Now, how many of you would agree with me that human beings are also capable of some horrendously evil atrocities? Oh, wow, you were quick on that one. (laughs) You come to church, we're not good, and as soon as I say evil, we're all bad, But they are. We are. Humans and human beings have this capacity. Think about murder, theft, racism, human trafficking, terrorism, war, prejudice. So we look at this polarized world in which we live, and most would believe that relatively few are really deeply evil people. Like there is a category of this vile, evil part of our humanity, but the majority would swing over and say, well, I think most are going to be good. How do we do this? How do we determine it? We determine it by conduct. We look at who behaves good and who behaves evil. So we have this perspective. This is how we identify people. It's by their conduct. So we live in this polarized tension between good and evil and conduct. Think about it. Conduct becomes the lens by which we determine good and evil. So when it comes to why did Jesus have to die, I would think even in the room here, a majority of us would want to move ourselves into the good camp that I don't know if Jesus needs to die for me because I'm a pretty good person and I'm capable of pretty good things. So is the delineation between good people and evil people simply determined by conduct? Interesting thought. So you're probably a little bit like me. You have your electronic devices, you have your phones, your apps, your iPads. How many of you get notifications, the little banners that come up when you know, global events and things are taking place? Yeah, some of you do that. I have news alerts that I have scheduled to come up. So often during the day, I'll be working, whether it's my computer screen or my, my phone, I'll get a banner or an alert about news that's happening globally or locally. You know the one thing that has never, ever, 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 ever come up on my screen? I've never had the local news alert come up and go, it's an amazing day in the GTA. People are smiling at each other. They're wishing everybody good morning. In fact, on the 401, we have live interviews of people allowing people to merge in, and they're just waving and going, please, you go right ahead of me today. I have nowhere to go. Streets fill. People are pausing on the street to smell the flowers, buying each other cookies and coffee. It never happens. Here's what I know to be true. If that ever happens, we're in the middle of the apocalypse, and somebody better be praying, because we know that's not going to happen. It doesn't even happen on a Sunday. So when you look at this, you begin to understand the challenge when we talk about evil is that we instantaneously want to move ourselves out of the evil conduct camp and into the good conduct camp. So we go back to our default setting where we go, well, I'm a good person. And I think we would all agree with the next three statements. I try to live a good life. I try to mind my own business. I try my best to play fair with others. We learned all of this in kindergarten. The point of the commonality in these statements is this. I try. I try to live a good life. I try to get along with other people. I try to treat everybody fairly. But the fact that we're trying means that there is, in essence, going to be a tripping point where we don't. So I want you to listen to carefully to what Paul would say about his own life. Paul contributed by far the most material to what we refer to as the New Testament. But listen to what he says. God I was so candid, brutally honest. Romans 7, 19, it's in your notes if you want to read along as I read it for you. It says this. So Paul, writing about his story, he said, I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I do delight in God's law. But then I see another law at work within me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from the body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Did you catch his candid honesty and blatant admission, he goes, I want to do good, but when I'm doing good, evil is right there with me. Don't raise your hand. But how many of us go, Paul, you just penned my very journal. How many of us would be honest enough to go, I know I try my best to do good, but sometimes the thoughts that I have and the impulses that I feel They don't align with the good that everybody else sees. And so here's where we get caught, where conduct doesn't necessarily reveal the content of the heart. So his blatant admission gives us a little bit of permission to explore, is it really just conduct that delineates good and evil? We shudder at the thought of evil. It's a term that's reserved for the most heinous, hard-hearted human beings that we could possibly imagine. In fact, the people that we think in these terms of evil, we're not even sure we should call them human at times. So we think about serial killers, or we think about dictators, ruthless dictators that will kill thousands and millions of people. We think about psychopaths and terrorists. But I was reading an article by John Hopkins, and he had some interesting insight on this, I want to share it with you. Listen to his words when he thinks about good and evil. He said, It's a mistake to believe that those are the only people who do evil, or that only the activities that rise to the level of this are murder, rape, or armed robbery? He said the worst of the worst may deserve especially strong con- uh, condemnation, but small cruelties committed by unthinking people who view themselves as good and just, despite their sometimes malicious actions, have done more than most people realize to spread evil, degrade civilization, and drag our culture down into the sewer. What was John saying? I summarized it this way. I think for the majority of us, evil doesn't invade our lives at the hands of malicious criminals. It impacts us in our daily lives at the hands of our family, our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors, our business associates, the people we meet on the street. It's those whom we deem to be Good people that can and sadly often do inflict the most atrocious acts of evil that degenerate our activity and our conduct as human beings. Think about this the evil that we do, the blaming of a co worker when it's clearly our mistake, failing to pay child support is an act of evil, cyberbullying is evil. Tax fraud, tax evasion, failing to declare earned income, an unfaithful spouse, insurance scams, bogus claims, one parent playing a child off another parent can clearly be an equal act of evil. So we go, can we really use conduct as a standard by which we define good or bad? See, we're really good at covering up our faults. We're careful to manage our lives so that our public conduct is much more palatable than our private condition. But I think we're discovering from Scripture that one of the points of resistance, why did Jesus have to die? If we declare it's because I'm a good person, I don't need Jesus, we begin to see how that breaks down and falls apart rather quickly. Romans 3.23 says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So there's no exception clause. There's no get-out-of-jail-free clause in this statement. It says all of us have sinned, I like what Richard Booker writes in one of his books I was reading. He's a specialist, when it, particularly when it comes to um, right around the life of Christ. He's done a lot of Hebraic research. He's done a lot of archaeological research. And one of his articles he was writing about were merchants where they would sell their ware, particularly earthen vessels, their pottery. So they would craft the pottery and they'd get their vase of their pot and they would get that and put it into the kiln. And when they fire it in the kiln, it will harden But if there's a flaw or an impurity in the clay, sometimes you get what? A hairline crack. So if there's a hairline crack and you're going to use that vessel for liquids, the liquid will eventually seep out. It's flawed. So a shady merchant would take the vessel and he goes, they would coat it with wax and rub it until it blends in. Then they would put it up on the shelf in their store so that when it was there, sort of twisted into the shadow, you wouldn't see the hairline crack. It would look, oh, it's just part of the blend. It's maybe just a little blemish in the finish. And an unsuspecting shopper would come in, buy that vessel, go home with that vessel, go to fill it with liquid, and then eventually that liquid would seep out because it was flawed. He said a savvy shopper knew that you would always go, you would take that vessel, you'd go outside, and you'd hold it up into the light, and then you'd begin to rotate it in the light, to see if the sunlight would penetrate any parts of the shell of that vessel. Isn't that powerful? Because for a lot of us, we're very good at putting on our best, aren't we? That that was rhetorical. You could answer too if you'd like to. Could be responsive. But we are, look at us, we look great today. We're good at putting on our best. So we polish ourselves up, but I wonder Under the scrutiny of God's full transforming light, would we want anybody to see the fracture lines, the fault lines in our lives? Or have we carefully managed to keep that just in the shadow so nobody can see? See, when we resist why Jesus had to die because we want to use that point, I'm a good person, we realize that our conduct will never, never prove itself for Christ. That's why Peter said Christ had to die for our sin because he knew that he couldn't do anything to perfect himself, nor can you, nor can I, only through Christ. It's a powerful, powerful reminder of why Jesus had to die. So when we realize that together we're all sinners, suddenly the option of Jesus becomes powerful in our lives. Now some of you are going, wait, 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 wait. This whole word sin. You're talking about. We don't like that word. I don't know that it's right for you to decide what sin is. You ever heard that before? I don't think I feel good about that. Well, that's the second point of resistance. Write it down. Who gets to decide what sin is? Well, that's the power of choice, isn't it? We want to be able to determine or to decide. So we were looking in preparation for today. We were looking as communicators at some definitions. In Webster's online dictionary, when you think about sin, it says this. Sin is an offense against a religious or a moral law. All right, that's good. Or sin is an action that is or is felt to be highly reprehensible. So they even gave an illustration. I thought this was interesting. The illustration would be it is a sin to waste food unless it's cooked turnips, just to qualify. So we, we see expressions of what sin might be, yet the Bible states in unequivocal terms that we are all sinners. Let me show you this. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20, it says, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does right, and never sins. So the ground is level for all of us. We're all sinners. So in other words, sin is inherent within our human nature. But, okay, let's be honest. We don't like this. We don't like people telling us we're sinners, and particularly those who are on a journey to discovering what life and adventure and faith is all about. Nobody wants to be called a sinner, let alone have some other person point out the sin. No one has a right to question my character to call me a sinner, you've removed my right for self-control and self-determination. I should be able to determine what I think sin is. I should be able to choose what I think is right and wrong. What is that? That's the seismic shift that's taking place within our society. Our morals and values have shifted so much that we now use terms like I have the right to self-determine, I have the right to choose. So because of that, we've removed God from the equation and we resist anybody who would even suggest that perhaps there is sin in my life. So this is a major shift. And so sin has become relative. Whatever you deem it to be is good for you. Whatever I deem it to be is good for me. And so the deepening chasm of humanity's moral ambiguity has blurred our understanding of what is right and wrong, good and bad. That's why chocolate ads can say it's sinfully delicious. And we can smile and yet somehow feel, is that right? because it just gives a little freedom in there. Here's the thing. We're really quick. We're really quick to call out sin in others, particularly those who, they do reprehensible things to other people, racism, marginalization, injustice, abuse. And yet the Bible says, be careful how quick we call somebody else's sin out. Romans 2, 1, it says, you have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else for whatever point you judge another person, you actually are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment on them do the same thing. Jesus simplified it because he knew we would complicate it. He goes, those of you that are calling out the sliver in the other person's eye, he goes, get the telephone pole out of your eye first. Because it's in the heart. See, if it's conduct, we can clearly see evidence of conduct and we call it out. But if it's in the heart, I can't see what you're thinking. You can't see what I'm thinking. But we all know we are convicted by what our own hearts are thinking. So you look at this, and that's why the Bible says it's just equalized. So what is this telling us together today? Sin is not relative. Sin is inherent in human nature. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when a holy and a righteous God created humanity and the two who had options willfully chose to disobey God. And God says, oh, And because of that, sin and separation came between a holy God and his creation. And in that moment, all of humanity was born into that sin experience. So God says, The only way this is ever going to get fixed is I'm going to have to do something about it. And I'll send my son, pure, holy, flawless, perfect. He will die on a cross and he will pay the price. That's why Peter said this. He bore our sins on the cross because Peter understood no one is without sin. So a sinner dying for a sinner doesn't appease a holy God. But the perfect sacrifice, Jesus, could pay the price for sin. So this beautiful opportunity comes out of Scripture that sin is something that we all experience. It's what we've inherited in our human natures. But God says, I refuse to leave mankind in that condition. I will do something about it. I will send my son so that he'll pay the price for sin that we can all experience forgiveness. The Bible is actually quite simple when it comes to the word sin. If you're to define it in its most elemental terms, sin is clearly to miss the mark. That's what it means. It's not about all the actions and consequences of those actions. It just means to to miss the mark. It means that God had a perfect plan and a perfect layout for us. But in our self-centeredness, we chose against that. And so everything we choose now is off center from what God wants. picture to have is a a baseball pitcher throwing into the strike plate or a dart player throwing a dart at the bullseye. The bullseye is God's plan. But humans always miss the mark, and he goes, you'll never hit it unless my son comes. So we go, why Jesus? Why did he have to die? Because we understand that I can't rectify the sin no matter how many good works I try to do, no matter how much I get on that treadmill and I try and I try and I try. There's nothing that I can do to remedy the issue of sin. Only Jesus can do that. That's why Peter says that Jesus would bear our sins so that we could die to what? To sin and live to righteousness. Third point of resistance, write it down. So people ask this when it comes to the question, why did Jesus have to die? Why Jesus? What does Jesus' death have to do with me? I get it you're religious, you need a crutch, you need something to lean on, I see that. But what's that got to do with me? And so for a lot of people, there's a disconnect between even if you can reach that place of understanding that yes, humanity is deeply and fundamentally broken, they'll go, okay, I'll give you that, but what does his death have to do with me? And friend, if you've been following Jesus for 50, 60, 70 years, never lose sight of this this is, this is that huge wow moment in our lives where we realize that apart from Jesus there was no hope for our lives. That apart from God taking the initiative to come, that's what all of this represents. When you hold a cup in your hand and you hold a piece of bread, what you're declaring is you're going, this isn't a religious expression. It's not just an observance. We don't just plug it into the church calendar. This is a voluntary recognition of saying, Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God. I believe you paid the price for my sin. And I believe that apart from you, I have no hope. And you alone are my great adventure. And that through Jesus life will change. Jesus didn't merely come to reform our conduct. He didn't come just to make us better people. He didn't come to regulate our choices and to reorient our moral compass. He came to radically transform our condition. The Bible says that Jesus came to make us new. He didn't want to make you better He wants to transform you and make you brand new. That's why the Bible says if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creation. Isn't that great? So sometimes you want to go up to somebody and go, I think you're living the old model. If you're a follower of Jesus, I think you're still living like the old model. Because the Bible says if we're in Christ, we're new creations. So isn't that fun? You get to go to the person now. Now you can turn to the person beside you. and, Are you the new model or the old model of yourself? Because Jesus came so that you could be a new person. What does that mean? No longer do you have to worry about the cost of sin. No longer do you have to worry about the penalty of sin. No longer do you have to worry about those consequences because Jesus paid it all for us. And he carried it for us some 700 years before Jesus came. God would send a prophet, Isaiah, and he would speak through the heart of the Lord. And the Spirit of the Lord would give him these words. And here's what it would say in the message paraphrase, that it would be Jesus who would carry our pains. He'd carry our disfigurements. All the things that were wrong with us, Jesus would deal with it. That's why when we come to a day like this, if we talk about the great adventure, it's important for us to understand that because of Jesus, he doesn't merely try to smooth things over and make everything okay again. He goes, no, 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 no. Let me take that life away from you and let me give you a brand new life. Let me break the power of sin over your life. Now, some of you need to hear this because what we do is we acknowledge that Jesus has paid the penalty for our sins, but we still carry them around. Even though we've accepted Christ as our Savior, we still carry them around. So, when I read the scripture, it says Jesus paid for my sin. So he's not ongoing. He's not like, a, oh, you did it again. I've got to pay for you again. He paid it. It's done. But I have to choose to accept what he did. And when I choose to believe and accept what he did, he goes, now you're a brand new creation. And now the enemy can whisper all he wants to you and you go, get behind me, Satan. I don't care what you have to say because the Bible says that The one that the sun sets free is what? Free indeed. I'm free. Friends, I'm free this morning. Yeah, there are moments when the enemy wants to whisper and put doubt and guilt and shame and embarrassment in my life, but all I got to do is stop and go, you know what? You're right. Those things I did, but I can't do anything about it. But you know, Jesus did. And he goes, and now you're adopted, Doug, and now you're forgiven, and now you're loved, and now you're mine, and now he has no right to you. You're free. Live like a free man. Live like a free woman. Don't live in doubt and apprehension. That's why when we worship, we should be the best of all people. We should be able to get to our feet and go, thank you, Jesus, because I'm not the old person anymore. I'm a brand new model. I'm a brand new model. Am I perfect? No. Ask Laura. She'll give you a whole list. I'm still having options added into my life. But I'm not walking around with a burden of guilt and conviction in my life anymore because Jesus paid the debt. He broke the power. And if you're investigating faith today, why do we talk about why Jesus and why did Jesus have to die? There is no adventure like the one when you follow Jesus Christ. And there's no greater adventure to understand that when you receive communion, it's not what these elements do. It's the profession of faith that I believe that Jesus paid the price for my sin, that he is the son of God, that he was raised by the power of God. He's alive today, and he's my Lord and Savior. Amen? So may we all, may we all live to that calling. I'm going to invite our, our service to come forward this morning. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to receive these elements. And if you're here today, and maybe you're just investigating faith, and you go, Doug, I'm visiting, I'm not sure. Well, let me explain a couple of things. If you're visiting today and you know that you're a follower of Jesus, he's Lord of your life, then join us. This is an open communion. We don't have a closed communion service here. Anybody who is a follower of Christ is welcome to join us. But you might be in a situation where you're going, "I've I've never personally trusted Jesus with my life. Do I have to go through a class? Do I have to sign up? Do I fill out a form online? No, you don't. All you have to do is say yes to Jesus. The Bible says that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. So this morning, I invite you, ask Jesus into your life, say yes to him. And by saying yes to him, take the elements because the journey of faith begins today. And your great adventure is a part of what we're experiencing together so I invite you, even if it's the first time, say yes to Jesus. We'll help you with the journey. That's our commitment. But this morning, let's experience his wonder. Christ alone, Christ alone is my cornerstone. So just take these two elements and look at them for a moment. In and of themselves are ordinary. We use them in everyday life. But when you bring them to a moment like this where they become symbolic representations of what God has done for you. Don't miss this. What God has done for you. Christ alone chose to give up his life so that you could know the forgiveness of sins. But not just that. That you could have relationship with your heavenly father, your creator, and experience the wonder of his love in so many dimensions. Friends, salvation forgiveness is not about what we get away from it's what we run into we run into a relationship with an all-powerful loving god who goes i just want to spend and do life with you and spend eternity with you so the bread reminds us that his body was beaten and bruised it was nailed to a cross it was a horrific scene and in the middle of it all even jesus said father forgive these who do this they do not know what they're doing They were so focused in the temporal that they didn't understand the eternal value of that moment. And he goes, don't charge them with a crime. Don't hold this sin against them. I know I'm on this cross. No one will take my life unless I willingly choose to lay it down. And then a cup of juice represents the blood that was shed. That's what Peter would remind us of. That the drops of blood that Jesus shed on the cross, what did that do? That was the perfect payment for the sins of the world, the innocent one slain, that those who are already steeped in sin could find forgiveness. Pray with me. Father, this morning, as we take a moment to reflect, even in our personal hearts and lives, may we never rush through a moment like this without recognizing that Jesus, you alone are the cornerstone of our lives. Each individual in this room this morning, only Christ Only Christ can give us the hope and the joy and the love and the experience that just we deeply, deeply long for. So I pray that we would never lose sight of that and that we would always celebrate the wonder of who you are. Let's take the bread together. And let's take the cup together. Uh, go ahead give them praise this morning so never never ever ever forget that God looks at you not through the lens of your conduct and your choices he looks at you through the lens of the cross he sees you through the completed work of his son Jesus Christ and I just I feel it just very heavy on me this morning that for some of us We have been beating ourselves up because our conduct hasn't quite been what we know would be pleasing to God. And so we are self-disqualifying from his forgiveness and salvation. Yes, when Jesus comes in, we start making better choices and we live our lives differently, but it's not the condition of our salvation because that's works. It's through the lens of the cross. No wonder the Bible could say this. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence with a fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now, and forevermore. That's the power of the God you serve today. Amen. So how do you dismiss from a day like this? So rather than building the emphasis back up in the room and celebrating as we walk out, I felt today was a day that what we needed to do is keep this spirit right here to remember God is able. Now some of you, you'd like prayer and we're gonna end the service and our prayer partners are gonna be down at the front. Love to have you come down, we'll pray with you and we just enjoy doing that. But as you walk out these doors and as you turn off that screen and you check out from Portico online, you will be bombarded by your social media tweets and your public life and all the activities you've got going on. But I pray that you will never forget to him who is able to keep you. He is able to keep you from stumbling and he will hold us strong. So when we leave today, Let's hold that for the next week, amen? Father, this morning, may that truth settle deep into our spirits. May we be firmly planted in our faith. I pray even for those, maybe for the first time, that have said yes to Jesus, that they would begin to understand the greatest adventure of their life is all about trusting and following Jesus Christ. We're so grateful for that. And I pray it in Christ's name, amen. Have an amazing week.